Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to the London Elections Podcast in association with Little Atoms with me, Josh Nico. And in this episode, housing. I've got a great panel today, Martin Skinner, who's a micro-apartment developer, CEO of Inspired Asset Management and Inspired Homes. Heather Kennedy, who's an organiser of Hackney Renters Group, Diggs, which is part of the Radical Housing Network. And Ben Judah, who's a journalist and author of This Is London, which is about the migrants' experience of London. Thank you all for coming. First question to you all. I'd like to hear your worst housing horror story that you've experienced yourself or of uh, people you know, or your worst housing horror stat for London. Heather. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with a story. This was a woman that I was talking to at um, Soup Kitchen last week in Hackney. And uh, what's for it a lot of people might find surprising is that um, around two-thirds of the people who are using uh, soup kitchens in London now, certainly in the ones that, that we work with in um, in Hackney, uh, they're, not, they're not people who are homeless, they're not people in temporary accommodation, they're people in the worst end of the private rented sector. And um, this woman was uh, telling me about her... Um, property where she lived uh, that she rented from private landlords she said it was barely big enough to put her uh, bed into she had to share a sink um, with five other people and she had to uh, share a toilet with um, eight other people this was a Victorian property that had been knocked into uh, been compartmentalized knocked into flats um, she was these properties are, are very often um, the only kind of properties that people on housing benefit can can claim and she told me that her housing benefits so what her private landlord is getting from um, the council from the state uh, for this you know, can't even really call it a bed sit is the maximum that they, they can get which is around 250 pounds a week and she commented to me and they call me a benefits grounder Ben for my new book, uh, This Is London, in order to understand the migrant experience of living in this city, I went undercover as a Romanian labourer. And in order to sort of live their lives uh, in the way they actually lived, I managed to live in a DOS house in Barking. A DOS house is uh, a place where you have 
in two two rooms, uh, 17 people living, kind of sharing beds. One person was hot bedding, sleeping there by, by day, another guy was sleeping there uh, by night. And this is utterly typical for the Eastern European labourers' experience of London, this sort of Dickensian squalor. And indeed, there's one study by the LSE that says that since 2004... Migrants from poorer countries, 40% of them have been accommodated in London by an increase of person per room. So the reality of that is this sort of squalid conditions. So I've seen quite a few different awful cases of people living in terrible conditions. Um, I've bought an awful lot of properties at auction. So I've seen all sorts there. I've seen people living underneath external exposed staircases. I've seen... 17 people living in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, Lightening the tone a little bit, I noticed that someone was renting out tents uh, online in existing properties the other day. Um, So I think there is a real... The biggest issue I see is is with supply, Um, and I think that's leading to a real affordability crisis. I think there needs to be some work on the regulations from a a realistic perspective. We've got to look at ways that we can increase supply within the constraints of the existing supply chain for construction. Heather, do you see the London housing crisis as primarily one of supply or of affordability or both? I don't see it as a problem of supply. Um, There are actually more homes per person in London than they ever than there ever has been um, and that's proportionate to, to the current population um, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of this idea that we have a, a supply issue what we have is a what we need is a, is, is a massive um, move towards housing redistribution because of course what we have is um, at the upper end of housing we've got people second, third, fourth homes, um, homes left empty. We've got people who are wealthier living in, you know, living in very large properties with a lot of space that they're not using. Um, then at the opposite end of the housing market, we have people in the situations as, as Ben describes. So we do have a huge amount of housing. We have enough housing. We have more than enough housing per person, but it's not being distributed according to need. It's being distributed according to uh, the amount of money that people can command in an increasingly unequal society. Martin, is there any way the market can handle this redistribution? I don't think you can force wealthier people living in very expensive parts of London to share their home with other people. Um, I think the risk of pushing wealthier people out of the market is that you draw less investment into the market. I really do think it is a supply issue, um, and I think... There are various different regulations that that get in the way. Um, and what primarily would you? I think space standards is is primarily to blame. Um, I think people there are more efficient ways of producing housing. There are more efficient ways of using housing, um, and I don't think the regulations have evolved quickly enough. Ben. Something I'm very interested in doing in almost every kind of policy issue is trying to look at it from a historical perspective. And I think there's way too much sort of presentism in the debate. We actually have very, very good um, statistics on the relative relationship between the prices of assets such as property and income going right back in this city and this country to the 18th century. And what we see is that houses, flats, any form of accommodation was pretty much constantly unaffordable to the majority of the population, apart from 
when capital was seriously disrupted following the First World War and its slow economic aftermath up until the 1970s. And if the London of today is more or less normal, and one of the, the reasons behind this is that in the economic system as it currently is, kind of growth of capital and the increase of the value of capital almost always exceeds the growth of incomes. And slowly that manifests itself because property is an asset class in the sort of takeoff of property price, property prices. I do have a think that the rate of that increase can be very affected by issues of supply and also by issues of foreign money laundering in the London property market. Heather, what, what, would, what would you say to Ben's... Uh, uh, sense that this is actually we're, we're back in business as normal now? Um, I think that we've seen certainly from um, the post-war period and obviously Ben was reflecting on a, a much larger time scale um, but I think if we look at how our housing, how the way that we house people, the way that we meet housing need and how that has changed in the last kind of 50, 60 years um, then we, ha- we, we do see people um, being pushed into uh, worse and worse housing conditions. People are less able to afford decent um, affordable housing and I think that uh, most people would agree that the kind of the, the slum conditions that we had in the Victorian era and then around the kind of depression isn't the sort of place that we, that we want to go back to. If we, I think what rather than comparing ourselves with you know um, some of the housing, some of the very dire housing conditions that we had a um, hundred years ago, then I think it might be more helpful to look at some of the other European countries um, who are a lot better at housing people and meeting housing need than than we are. Um, of course, there's always been you know ebb and flow of people moving in and out of London, but very starkly now uh, we are having people on low and, and middle incomes who who can't afford to live here anymore. Um. Uh, ben and Martin, how comparable is the UK to European uh, cities and, and, and the markets there? One of the comparable facts is is that asset prices after the First World War, the Depression and the Second World War reached historically unprecedented lows. And all across Europe, um, you know, outside of the socialist bloc, the price of housing was at historical low relative to income, allowing in Britain, France and Germany and Italy a large percentage of the population than ever before to purchase property. And that to a varying degree of incline in all of those countries, you've had a reversion back to the historical norm of asset prices uh, relationship to the average income of which house prices are are part. And obviously there's a, there are big differences between sort of London, Paris and Berlin, but there are a lot more similarities in the upward curve, I think, than we often uh, would sort of take for granted. Is there a distinction between the, the home ownership culture of the UK and uh, a, uh, a greater embrace of, of renting in continental Europe? Is that, has that led to... Well, there's one of the key aspects in, in this is that the relationship between kind of tenant and owner can have various different power dynamics. You can have a legal framework which gives the tenant far greater power, so they can effectively be there for life, they can have rent controls, or you can have a relationship where the owner has almost complete uh, influence over this. And one thing we see is that Germany and Britain are at opposite uh, ends of the scale uh, on this. I would say there are quite significant differences between the UK market and, for example, Germany. We have approximately twice the birth rate of Germany. We have a much higher rate of net migration into the country. And in particular, 
you know, people tend to move towards the strongest economic centre, and that's London. Um, so I don't think we can really compare directly the rent-controlled market in Germany with what is perceived to be an unregulated space in the UK. But actually there are some 430 regulations, roughly, that do apply to private landlords in the UK. So it's far from unregulated. Um, <clears throat> I was at a, at a do this morning where an investor that manages some 50 billion of investments and intends to put in 30% of their capital into what they now call social infrastructure, which includes housing. Um, they said that the biggest risk to them investing in that sector would be rent control. If rent controls came in, their assets would be massively impaired. So they would have to look to exit that market. So I think it's very easy to say rents are going up too fast. I would agree completely. Um, but actually some of that is as a result of kind of attacks on buy-to-let private landlords and private investors. If rent controls were brought in to control rents, you have unintended consequences, which is typically that you have much higher rental inflation when the rent control is forced to be released. Heather, the mayor's powers over rents are limited uh, and the candidates have suggested various things that would uh, try to dampen down uh, on, on, on rents or to regulate landlords more. Uh, but how do you feel about uh, uh, Martin's suggestion that, that rent control would, would, would have this deleterious effect? Um, well, I mean, first of all, on the question of regulation, um, it's, it's, it's widely acknowledged that this is one of the most unregulated private rental sector markets. Um, I don't think the... the the individual numbering the individual pieces of, of regulation really gives us a, um, a helpful understanding of where we are. There was massive um, deregula deregulation, of course, um, in the 1988 Housing Act. And we used to have fair rents. We used to have you know, a form of rent control. Um, we used to have uh, much longer tenancies. Um, and I would say that it was a it was a, a healthier private rented sector in lots of ways. Obviously, the world the, the world is, is a different place. But I think um, We've actually got there's there's an awful lot of propaganda, um, unexamined propaganda that that goes against the the idea of of any form of rent rent control. And of course, there's you know that there, there are many different ways that you can introduce a form of rent stabilisation. And of course, we would we would need to look at one that was that was workable within our current housing market. Um, but what we hear all the time is that landlords would would flee the market, so that would decrease supply. Well. That might create an immediate issue, but what, those houses are not going to somehow take off into the into into space. Um, I think one of the things that the government are trying to do with increasing tax on buy to let landlords is they are trying to go back on um, the real push towards encouraging people to uh, to become buy to let landlords, which they are now acknowledging. I would suggest in uh, in the the change of taxation um, is actually strangling supply. So Martin talks about you know the, the problems around supply, the problems around people getting on the house. Housing market, you know, we have we, we have um, we've had an absolute boom in the last few decades of buy to let landlords. Um, so I really refute this idea that that rent control needs to just be it, need, it needs to be uh, discluded from the debate and the conversation because all of a sudden it would it would lead to a decrease in supply. I don't really think that bears up to that much analysis. Martin, has, has it gone, gone too far with its tax changes on buy to let? Will we see a shortage of landlords? Well, they haven't pushed buy-to-let out of the market entirely, um, 
But it, it they, there seems to be this assumption that if you discourage a buy-to-let landlord then from buying a property, then you gain a home for a first-time buyer. It's not that simple. As a developer, you require a number of people to commit to purchasing units and to exchange units before you can draw the finance that you need to build them. Now, that process of building a scheme takes more than six months. It takes typically 12 to 18 months. So you won't get owner-occupiers committing to purchasing a unit outside the period that a mortgage offer is valid for, which is typically a maximum of six months. So if you put buy-to-let investors and foreign investors off buying to let, you actually lose potentially the entirety of the supply for both the owner-occupiers and the buy-to-let investors that would be purchasing those units. So I think you've got to be very careful with that sort of thing. Um, And they're not far off putting buy-to-let investors off entirely. And I think there is an assumption that large-scale institutional investors will come in and fill that gap, and I really don't believe that that's the case. The, The economics of PRS, which is this idea of institutional, professional, rented sector, is going to come in, but the the economic model doesn't quite work. Um, You you don't get the same value from a rental-based valuation with standard size units. You can do it. There is a precedent out there. Student housing has worked very effectively with smaller private spaces and larger shared spaces. Um, However, currently you have to rent those to students. So the 20 to 40 sort of age group up until the first-time buyer age, is unserved. Um, I think the government could enable that market to really happen very professionally if they removed the requirement to rent student apartments to students. Then they could be produced and rented to young professionals, and they would be much more affordable. Ben, tell me about the role of foreign investment in London and uh, the extent to which it's a a boon uh, or a pressure on the city. Well, I'd like to talk about something a little more precise than that, which is the role that money laundering plays in the London property market. Uh, On paper, Britain has a very tough anti-money laundering sort of set of legislation, but legislation only exists as far as it is enforced. One thing that we have seen over the last uh, 20 years with the entry into the global financial system of China and and Russia and uh, other former communist states is a rapid rise in corrupt individuals in those countries with dirty black cash pilfered from their national budgets, seeking to launder it into nice white cash that can then buy sort of uh, beautiful sort of consumer objects and sort of Ferraris and rings or whatever in in the West. This is a huge part of the global economy, which is little discussed. Every year, around a trillion dollars leaves poorer countries and travels towards uh, the West. The way it does this is via a sort of parallel financial system which permits individuals to enter a sort of dark web of finance where their identities can be completely concealed. The first step towards uh, towards achieving this is to create a shell company, shell company which hides uh, your identity. A project recently called the Global Shell Games so contacted 3,000 incorporation agents worldwide. They found a quarter of them were willing to set up a shell company with no proof of identity and half of them were willing to 
to set up a shell company with only flimsy sort of uh, proofs of identity, such as sort of an incomplete set of uh, set of do- set of documents. Bec- a shell company is not actually a company. A shell company is a company stripped to its sort of barest uh, sort of legal definition. It produces no goods and services. And in fact, what it is is almost like a code that you can't crack to identify the owner of a certain sort of sum of cash. And most of them are actually designed by computers, so you have an endless chain of holding companies. These are registered typically in uh, British, ta- uh, British tax havens. British tax havens take around a third of the 17 uh, trillion worldwide in this parallel financial system. And then one of these, one of these shell companies, can then purchase a London property. So what that creates is a funnel of, an- of anonymity, which is le- legally, of course, possible in a way that wouldn't be possible to a sort of British citizen, in order to turn dirty black cash into nice white cash in uh, the London property markets. And according to the National Crime uh, Agency, hundreds of billions are laundered in the London property market uh, every year, and this has distorted the market. And the distortion, does that uh, feed through the whole market, uh, or is it basically confined to the super prime properties that we see? In uh... I mean, the way that property pricing actually works, and the way that it is, to a certain extent, indexed, and the way that you know, the relationship of different Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kind of agents and price reflexes. Yes, it does. And, but I think it hasn't, filtered through to the rest of the country to quite the same degree. It's always a question of degrees here. So prices in London over the last 20 years have risen by 501%. In the rest of the country, it's a 300%. I do believe a part of that is through, uh, is through money laundering. Well, I went out of my, my way to sort of uh, prove that my sort of uh, 
uh, sort of funnel of uh, financial flows isn't sort of merely a sort of very it's an intellectual argument, but it's actually happening on a daily basis. And for a TV show called From Russia with Cash, I was the creative consultant that came up with the idea for this show. A Russian uh, activist from the Russian opposition pretended to be a corrupt uh, government minister, and we sort of went into five uh, sort of household names, sort of fine estate agents in uh, Kensington and Chelsea, and he sort of went in, viewed five uh, sumptuous properties, and said, "Hello, I've stolen this money from the." Russian budget, I'm minister, will you sell me this house? And behaving like the Swiss bankers of 20 years ago, the uh, state agents were all ready to proceed and were all recommending that he set up this scheme. So my kind of policy recommendation for the uh, next mayor would be to end the ability to buy property anonymously in London. In an age where the average citizen feels... He's under surveillance, the government's taking more and more and companies taking more and more of their privacy away. I think it's quite shocking that we do not know who owns 37,000 properties in London. That's a total area of two and a quarter square miles. I think that's deeply troubling, given this sort of uh, these patterns of money laundering at play. In terms of laws not being enforced, not only were the estate agents sort of um, behaving very poorly in my uh, show, they uh, also effectively don't file what are called suspicious activity reports. There are two crimes in this country where you're supposed to immediately report suspicion of it to the authorities. One is terrorism. If I go, I feel like sort of blowing myself up on on the tube, you've got to immediately report me. That's just what you've got to do. And if I also went to you, hello, I'm thinking of engaging in some money laundering, you would have to immediately report me as well. Um, Estate agents only filed 0.05% of suspicious activity reports in the United Kingdom last year, which is way out of proportion. Remember, the National Crime Agency says hundreds of billions are being laundered in London every year to their exposure to this, uh, uh, to this, uh, this, um, this nefarious thing. And I think one of the policy proposals I'd have to answer that, which is that we need to make a lot more of these laws uh, real by having them actually enforced. And you need to have serious fines, you need to have people struck off the register if it's found that uh, uh, that they have uh, been doing dealings with uh, flagrantly corrupt sort of kleptocrats. Heather, in terms of legal enforcement or new laws uh, in the area of property generally, uh, what would you most like to see uh, the next mayor propose? Um, I think, to be honest, it's it's fairly limited um, in what what can be imposed just just by the the mayor speaking directly about the private rented sector. So, so um, what we need in the private rented sector, and these two uh, policies would need to go hand in hand, is that we need security of tenure, and we need um, some form of workable rent stabilisation. This is what is being explored in. Um, in Scotland, and this is what will it looks like it will be introduced. Um, so we we need to follow suit, but that's that's not something that the London Mayor could introduce. What the where I feel that the London Mayor has a real role is around um, the flow of uh, wealthy investment money coming into the city. So I think we saw under Boris Johnson um, him at pains really to encourage foreign investment money. He really is a, a, an idea that that Martin alluded to. Um, this idea that that this kind of in investment um, 
trickles down and is is of benefit to individuals. I think we've seen the the exact opposite. In fact, I think this this foreign investment investment money has flowed right down to the market. It's pushed up people's rents and it's priced people out. So it's actually been um, it's actually been negative to um, people on lower middle middle incomes. Um, and I would really like to see uh, the next mayor send a very clear message that London is not for sale. I would like them to. Um, to, to work with central government to scrap this concept of affordable housing, which is al- almost this kind of Orwellian idea um, where you have something that's called affordable and, in fact, it's anything but. And uh, we would like them to place a, a, a much higher minimum requirement on developers to provide not affordable, in quotation marks, but, but, social, but social housing. Should we, at this uh, time that we see uh, the, the number of renters about to uh, overtake the number of owner occupiers in London, um, sh- should the aspiration to own property, uh, which the Conservatives nationally and, and Zach Goldsmith embrace, uh, is, is this something that uh, uh, it, it should still be an aim um, in the second decade of the 21st century? Is something for, for everybody? Yeah, I think it's a good aspiration for people to have. Um, Certainly buying my Even first Even when home, it's a painful dream. Good things are often difficult to get. Um, <laughs> it's, never, it's never been easy to buy the first home. Um, I think it's a real stre- it was a big stretch for me. Um, but it's one of the best things that I've ever done. Um, I think the government's help for first-time buyers with the help to buy is a great thing. It's definitely helped a lot of people to get onto the ladder. Um, but I think it shouldn't be at the expense of buy-to-let landlords, for example, because they produce most of the rental stock that people are renting, whether they're bought by buy-to-let investors in the UK or abroad. Um, investors from abroad don't buy properties and then leave them empty. They tend to rent them out, so local people tend to occupy them. Um, I think the government should be encouraging investment across the board, and it should be reducing regulation to enable an increase in supply. It's clearly a supply issue for me. We had a housing crisis before the credit crunch. We've been producing half as many homes as we need for as long as I can remember. Um, but I don't think it's rocket science to solve this. We have a construction capacity constraint. We're producing half as many homes as we need. People don't want the responsibility, in my experience, having had thousands of tenants. They don't want the responsibility of more space privately than they need. Um, And they don't want the responsibility of longer-term contracts. I I don't remember anyone asking me for a longer contract. They typically pay a premium for shorter contracts. How about we make the units significantly smaller, but we have student-style social spaces that are more conducive to actually creating community. Ben, your thoughts on the future uh, of home ownership? Well, the historical pattern, uh, the historical pattern would be is that because the sort of rate of return and the rising value of capital uh, almost always uh, ex- outside of a period of war or political chaos exceeds the re- increase in um, in income, I think we will see, especially through the inheritance mechanism with people sort of it, people who've already got capital inheriting capital with from their parents leading to an accumulation of their capital we will see a growing concentration of rates of possession within a smaller band of the the population and i think short of very radically different politics and sort of confiscatory taxes 
that's something people are going to have to, to learn to live with. I feel actually quite pessimistic about the possibilities of politics in this current uh, period. Heather, what do you think about home ownership as a continuing aspiration for Londoners? Well, we can talk about home ownership as a continuing aspiration, as I de- indeed I think this the, uh, the current government are interested in doing. That doesn't tell us anything about how realistic that aspiration is for people. Um, it's that part that I'm interested and interested in, and we know that actually that aspiration is becoming uh, more and more unrealistic. That's why we've got um, such a uh, such a steep decline in the number of people who are able to afford their own home. Um, help to buy i think is is making things worse it's pushing up house prices it's it's also only available to um wealthier people and um i think that there's there has always been and there will always be a section of our society it's much larger now you know you've got people on on um you know really quite comfortable incomes who still can't afford to buy but you will always have a section of our society that will not be able to afford to buy their own property this government has no policies and apparently no interest in how those people will be housed. The housing and planning bill will make everything worse, um, particularly for for social uh, for the future of social housing in London. I think we I think this bill will really ring the death knell for that. Essentially, it's requiring um, poorer people um local councils to to sell the ha- the housing for poorer people to subsidize um housing for wealthier people so they so they can get on the housing ladder now that's just um incredibly unprogressive um and it will it will wreak devastation and it will make the housing crisis much worse um i think you know we hear it from all quarters actually from from the left and the right, the right um that there needs to be an increase in 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 affordable housing but what does that really mean um what we need is an increase in in council housing um you know martin suggests that we can address um the the housing shortage by student size social spaces well the, the problem with that martin is that we have um part of the a large part of the increase of private renters is families it's not students it's not even young professionals it's families who are already being asked to bring up their children in a space that is completely inappropriate there will always be um there will always be people who uh, for whom such as families uh, you know disabled people um older people people for whom the private rented sector is not an appropriate place to live it doesn't offer the right level of stability or protection from exploitation um we are always going to need council housing what really worries me about the housing and planning bill is that once we see the mass sale of homes and communities under this bill then we're not going to get those homes and communities back Martin, uh, apart from the economics, isn't there a case for mixed communities in London? Of course, yeah. I think there is a major problem in social housing. I don't think the private rented sector can be blamed for it. Um, I think local authorities should be doing an awful lot more of social house building, social home building. You know, it shouldn't just automatically be dumped onto private developers to develop social housing. It should be a government-led rollout. I mean, and I agree with that, Martin. So what we need is we need uh, to lift the the borrowing caps, which currently stop um, local councils from from building social housing. That's one of the first things that the the central government should do. I agree. I think I personally feel that across the board, there is a bit of a uh, policy gap here. Um, There have been huge cutbacks in social housing grants 
Um, <clears throat> there have been attacks on private rented sector landlords from a taxation perspective, and there haven't really been any new ideas in terms of supply, aside from the deregulation of office to residential. And how do you feel about estate regeneration uh, uh, as a policy which uh, uh, Zach Goldsmith is more enthusiastic about than Sadiq Khan? Is it a uh, uh, an important way of giving local authorities more funds to ensure that uh, social housing is in, is in better condition uh, or, or is this a way of undermining communities? We've seen we've seen some communities across London hugely undermined by um, by some very very unfortunate state led um, models of uh, essentially gentrification. Um, it's only it's only regeneration. It's only it's only redevelopment if there's an if there is a benefit to that community, and that has not been the policy intention in estates like the the Haygate Estate. Um, equally in in the area that I live in in Hackney Downs. Um, so I think we have to be really really careful here. Uh, people are. People have really been burned um, and they've been uh, priced out of their communities. Um, of course, local authorities are really struggling to, to, to do what they can to, to fund um, to fund uh, regeneration. But what we've seen too many times is um, that the argument is made, oh, well, these, you know, the, these estates are sink estates, it's, it's poor housing. But actually, there's been a very deliberate policy on the part of local councils to um, to pull funding and to, and to allow these estates to fall into a state of disrepair so they can uh, justify um, selling off council housing and replacing it with uh, housing that is going to make them a lot more money. Martin, you an enthusiast for estate regeneration, particularly perhaps to increase densities in uh, parts of London? I'm in favour of increasing densities. Um, <clears throat> I'm not really in favour of moving existing populations out of areas that they've grown up in. The final question is consultation with communities. Have we seen enough uh, by developers and uh, by uh, local authorities uh, over the last uh, decade? Um, how can... Uh, we ensure that this consultation happens better in future? There's a balance with this. Um, There are lots of very well-intentioned policies, and I think local authorities tend to be very populist, so they try very hard to give everybody their say. People will tend to have a NIMBY culture. They tend to be biased against development. Without development, you don't get supply, however. Um, And the longer it takes to get planning consents and to build schemes out, the more expensive it is for developers and the more you come across a viability issue. You know, in general, I think there are something like 300,000 units worth of consented schemes in London. My experience is not that developers don't want to build them out and collect their profits. They do. It's just that when they get a consent, it's based on a viability assessment, which will typically allow about a 20% margin on cost. Now, my funding costs me a lot more than this, but let's say you assume it's 10% per annum. If it takes a year and a half to get your consent, and many take an awful lot longer than that, and it takes you 18 months to build it out, well, that's 30%. It doesn't work. And that's why most schemes end up sat there to a degree waiting for house price inflation or for their Section 106 um, agreements to be negotiated. Um, So I think we have a viability issue for most new schemes and I think that's due to a lot of wasted time with inefficiencies in the planning process. 
do you accept that explanation, Heather? Um, no, I mean, what, what I would say about consultation is that um, it's it's be- almost become a bit of a dirty word because um, from the perspective of communities, it's been done in a way where the intention was never genuine. Um, the desire to meaningfully consult uh, with residents um, w- w- was just never there. And I've spoken to countless architects who have said um, that they've they've been privy to development plans that long before they've ever gone to con- consultation. Um, the developers and the, the councils have been very, very clear about what direction they're going in um, and and the role here for uh, local communities to be able to uh, re- resist um, re- regeneration that isn't going to be of benefit to that community has been watered down to, to such a degree and I mean I'll give you one example one of the worst examples I've ever seen is, is in Barnet Council um, very very good quality housing um, on the Sweetsway estate, all of that property um, is still, I think it's still sitting absolutely empty and it's been empty for a really long time. While those families um, have been moved out of borough, they've been moved to um, much less... um, much less suitable conditions for people who were, who were bringing up families. You know, I spoke to one one lad who'd lived on the estate his whole life. He was 16, he was doing his GCSEs. It took him uh, two, two and a half hours to get to school every day. And that that those homes are sitting empty, waiting for them to be bulldozed and replaced with luxury flats. A greater accountability for uh, local authorities in that case and for the mayor to take an active... Yeah, I think local authorities need to be given more powers because I think sometimes when local authorities um, do try to act in the interests of residents and do try to stand up uh, to, to developers, then they find that actually their hands are tied and they have very little power. So I would like to see a redressing of the balance of power between local authorities and developers in these kind of um, development plans. I, I disagree on the basis that <clears throat> I think we need to find more efficient ways of producing housing in order to keep up with the demand. And I really don't think that local authorities are the most efficient people to to deal with that. My experience is that, for the most part, they tend to be on holiday or ill or changing or coming up with a new strategy to get a solution to a problem to produce a development. It's very difficult, and it's called development control. Okay, I really think this should be seen much more as a development facilitation process. There's no question that we need more homes, we need more amenities, we need more community facilities. Without development, you don't get any of those things, and the stand, the existing stock just deteriorates. On peril making councils. Um, yeah, I think that I, I think that you know that there. Um there's there is this argument which is very popular that local authorities are, are not are overly bureaucratic and, and not efficient and you know to, obviously to some extent that is correct but um you compare them to to many private developers and actually the outcomes for normal people um for people who just want somewhere to live are far greater when you when the housing is being provided by local authorities for the simple reason that there isn't the same profit motive there and we've seen what um the idea this this ideology which has been embraced by successive governments that the the, the private sector can provide and meet housing need um we've seen the failure of that in the current london housing crisis we'll we'll have to stop it there Uh, thank you very much to you all to heather to ben to martin please tune in to the next episode here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 